This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to the Equalizer podcast. Sometimes at the Equalizer, we have to be like the Portland Thorns goalkeepers and demonstrate our depth. So for the first time hosting, it is Pardeep Khatri, and I'm joined by frequent contributor to the Equalizer and a ton of other places, Claire Watkins. So Claire, hi, nice to chat. Yeah, excited to talk about uh, the end of the NWSL season, I guess, question mark. Yeah. I mean, I remain very not hopeful that we'll have more games, but, well, I was wrong last time, too. So, (laughs) um, let's get to the chase. We had a couple of NWSL games on Saturday to close out the fall series. First was a six-goal game between the Orlando Pride and the North Carolina Courage. The Courage scored three in the first half. The Pride scored three in the second half. It was a good time. Then uh, we had to close out the fall series. Rain hosting the Utah Royals. The Rain won that 2-0, their first win of the fall series. So, Claire, let's start with the more fun game. The first one, North Carolina and Orlando. So, what did you think about it? That game was wild. I loved it. Um, <laughs> we saw it was, it was interesting. I think more from an Orlando standpoint maybe than a North Carolina standpoint. North Carolina, this whole fall series, they're obviously missing – a lot of their core they're missing important people on every line um offense midfield and defense so they've had some lapses uh obviously they got they got slammed by by the houston dash in their last game where they just kind of shut off and we saw them kind of shut off in the second half but what a emotional roller coaster for orlando their defense at the beginning of the game um really let them down like those first goals uh that first goal that Dabinia scored your center backs can't do that. You can't give them that much space. And then in the second half you had, I would say particularly you had Marta and you had Sydney LaRue basically just say, we are not going down like this, not after the year that we've had. Um, And they came storming back. And I thought that that was a huge personality win or not. I guess they tied, but it felt like a win for them. It was a personality performance that we didn't necessarily see from Orlando a ton last year. Um, so yeah, I loved that game. Yeah. I mean, you were talking about the defensive performances of both teams. And one of the things that I was actually surprised when I was checking last night was that of the four games, the courage played, they conceded three goals in three of them. And obviously yesterday was one of them. Yeah. They uncharacteristic. Definitely. I think it's probably not helpful for their defense that there were so many formation changes for them throughout the fall. Um, obviously they were missing Abby Urseg. She's a huge piece of that central defense 
but I still just think a lot of it was mental. I think we saw a lot with North Carolina and, and well, this is more of a general thing, but um, they, some of the stats for them that were really uncharacteristics was things like they were not winning tackles. They were not winning duels. And that's a level of, I think, engagement defensively that they just didn't have during this fall series. And I don't know if that's just from mental fatigue or even, inst- you know, instruction from coaching that, this is more about the process and less about gritting it out. Um, but yeah, they don't usually, that was the number one defense in, in 20, 2019. I think um, you don't usually see that a lot from them. Certainly not as again, against teams like Houston and Orlando, that's completely flipping everything on its head from last year. Absolutely. Um, so let's, do you have anything else from that game or anything else from that game? I, um, Dabinia's really great. Very good soccer <laughs> player. Uh, Lynn Williams is a marvel to witness. She makes some of the craziest shots, and then sometimes she is right in front of goal, and she can't. She shoots it right at the keeper. So Lynn Williams remains an enigma. Uh, I thought Sydney Larue has been a very positive leader for Orlando the last two games. Just emotionally, she got that one goal back um, in their last game, and then. I think she really spurred them on. And then Marta was all over that game. And I just thought to myself, well, I'm just so happy that we got to see that this year. Um, yeah. That kind of performance was almost lost completely to, to this year. So I'm, I was so happy to see that kind of stuff. Cause that's what, that's the kind of stuff that you love about the NWSL. And even without everybody there, we still got some of that. So I was thrilled. Right. That to me has been one of the big perks of the fall series is that maybe not all of the big stars have been there, but it's not like the uh, the series lacked for entertainment, lacked for entertaining players. I mean, there were a lot of, even in the games that didn't have a ton of goals, which there were plenty that did, but even in those games, this is a league that just does not lack entertainment and entertaining players. Yeah, totally true. So to the rain Utah game, sorry to call it the boring one. It wasn't that bad, but the uh, rain got their first uh, win of the fall series. Sofia Huerta scored her first goal for the rain and uh, Leah Pruitt closed things off for them. And Utah actually ended the series without a win. So over to you, Claire. Yeah. Uh, I enjoy, I agree that that game and it might've also been, sometimes I get, I get a little bit, psyched out by the early game late game sometimes I don't necessarily have a ton of energy for the late game but um that it was pretty standard match between those two teams like you would imagine um Utah this was not Utah's greatest performance they struggled I think uh Diallo had like 14 passes in the whole game in the midfield I think she just kind of had to run around in circles there was a big disconnect between their defense and their offense and um and I think that the rain, I don't know if I would say that I thought that the rain were, you know, barn burning last night. They didn't look significantly different than they have, but there's a quality, they have a quality to, to many of their players and they were given space to, to work some of that stuff out. Um, Sofia Huerta, I think has had a better year than it seems uh, for a team that hasn't gotten a ton of huge results. She had that fabulous dummy in the rain's first goal against Utah in their first fall series match and she was working her way back from injury in the challenge cup. I just, I really do think that she is going to be next year, a huge, a huge part of that offense. And I thought that, um, 
the rain defense played better, I thought, than than they have in in past games, which I'm sure they have to be have to be thrilled about. Do you think that the rain is starting to figure things out under Fareed Benstidi? I know everybody wasn't raving about how they did at the Challenge Cup, but it seemed like they were being that they were more cohesive and a little bit more together against the Royals last night. I I do think my takeaway for a lot of these teams this year is even even the ones like the rain or even like Utah maybe or Orlando who didn't get a ton of chances to really improve you getting getting a free year is valuable no matter what especially for a manager like Ben Steedy who is making a huge transition from the European style game to to the American style game and so the fact that he got to play against other NWSL teams figure out how they play against him what the strengths and weaknesses of his squad are. Um, and I did they implement a new style? Kind of. I think that a little bit too. He just sent them out there to play, and sometimes they played well and sometimes they didn't. But the fact that he was able to do all of that and do that evaluation with now having the opportunity with, you know, the Leon backing to get the pieces that they need in this offseason is huge. It's going to be huge for them. What they do with that in 2021 Still not sure. I mean, we can't pretend like he's really been tested in a serious way because there were a lot of other teams who were also using this time for an evaluation period. But I just can't think that it hurt, you know, to be able to get your feet wet in NWSL competition and have it not affect your standing with the team, you know, at all. Yeah, that has to be a huge benefit for a lot of different people. Um, So we've finished out the fall series, 18 games. Pretty entertaining to, uh, time to watch the NWSL. Who do you? Th- who are you impressed with? Not just teams, but let's maybe focus on players. Yeah, I thought that the fall series for a number of teams allowed some stuff that maybe started in the Challenge Cup to develop in a really nice way. Obviously, you have to talk about the Houston Dash first, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, continuing their run of form, I think probably people were wondering if they would come down to earth a little bit or if, without Rachel Daly, if, if their style would still work. The answer was yes. Christy Mewis has continued to have a fabulous year. Uh, I think Nichelle Prince has continued to have a fabulous year, especially as someone who didn't get to play in all of those Challenge Cup games but got to kind of carry that momentum into the fall. Portland's project is going really, really well. Um, Sophia Smith getting on the field and getting her first goal is huge for them. I think Morgan Weaver has also played well. I think it's very funny that Christine Sinclair was the golden boot winner of the (laughs) fall series. She just had a great time out there. Um, And that's good not only for, for the team's development into 2021, but I think this was a huge culture this was a big culture incubator for, for Portland. And I think that that was really positive too. And then past that, I think you just kind of have to look at Dabinia had a great tournament. And then maybe you just look at those U.S. women's national team call-ups, right? The Red Stars had six players get called up to the U.S. Shea Groom got called up to the U.S. Christy Mewis. Um, those are, many of those are rewards for, for playing well this year. And I know that from the Chicago standpoint, actually one of their goals, if we're talking about kind of the nebulous goals of 2020, one of the things they wanted to do was set up their players to succeed and get noticed and get that camp call up. So um, someone like Sarah Gordon in Chicago's back line or Kelia Watt in their front line or Morgan Gatron in their midfield, all of those players I think did themselves well 
this year. And if you're looking for takeaways, which you can't really look at competitive ones, but mm-hmm. that kind of player development and their stature kind of rising, I think is, is a huge positive for, for those teams. Yeah. And that uh, leads in perfectly to a question I've had and gone back and forth on many times in the last several days and weeks. Is the 2020 NWSL season a write-off overall for some teams, not for others? How much value should we give to this stretch of games where teams either play anywhere from 4 to 11 games overall? I think that's a good question. I'd love to hear your take first, and then I'll tell you mine. All right, fair enough. Um, So first, I was very much like, what, four to 11 games? You can't make a lot of judgments off of that. And then I remembered the Houston Dash. (laughs) And obviously, they sort of took the four games of the fall series to not just to not act like the Challenge Cup was this sort of one-off thing that existed in one period of time. And maybe we'll be sitting in these spots a year from now and thinking, oh, yeah, well, 2020 was just one period in time. But it seems like the Houston Dash are the argument that 2020 wasn't a write-off. But maybe for some teams, write-off isn't even the right word. But I have to imagine... Well, I think there's probably lessons for everybody to take is what I ended up thinking when I started going from it by uh, on a team-to-team basis. So I'm a bit more positive about the limited amount of games that we ended up getting. Yeah, I think I, I, think I agree. I think my take on it is that I don't think you can – I don't think you can place too much significance on results this year. I think that that is true. Even – the Houston Dash winning the Challenge Cup, it's not legitimized by the fact that they won it. It was the way that they won it and the right. style in which that they won it decisively. Um, and I think that them carrying that into the fall season or fall series is the story. It's not necessarily, you know, that they beat North Carolina, though that was that was huge, but the, the way they were doing it. And so I think because you can't compare results because we have coaches, every single coach has a different answer for what they wanted to get out of this year. Um, you had coaches who said we wanted to win the dash wanted to win. I know the Washington spirit wanted to get probably more results than they did. Um, and then you have some coaches who were basically like, we're not participating in the construct of results at all. Rory Dames was very um, clear about that throughout the challenge cup. And even into the fall series, Paul Riley, uh, was clear about that. Mark Skinner for Orlando was clear about that kind of by other circumstances. They didn't really have a chance to put it all together. Um, but if you're looking at that value, I think if the things the the closest I would come to calling something a write-off would be coaches giving players chances to succeed and those players still struggling. So I think when you're looking at maybe Orlando's depth or even North Carolina's depth, sometimes Chicago's depth, rain, um, you maybe sometimes had hope that if you put these players in, in these style of games, they'll really show you something and maybe win a job. And I think that some players totally did that and some players didn't. And so I think that again, because it's free game time, I don't think there's any negative to it, but drawing inconclusive, um, drawing inconclusive results from particular players who are probably on the bubble of making those rosters 
is a little bit like, well, we tried, some of it was good, some of it was bad. We probably have to continue this project into next, next year to really make any decisions. So that's kind of my thought process on that. Um, but I think you saw someone like the dash or maybe another good example is sky blue mm. who, um, in the challenge cup at the beginning, everyone was a little bit concerned, right? Like what is the vision here? They're really changing their style of play. Sometimes it's going well, sometimes it's really not. Um, and I think that we saw a little bit more, um, maneuverability in that coaching style in the fall series. And, they showed the pieces of it that are working and the pieces of it that are not. And so that kind of stuff can actually be very positive because you have a team that like their offense is, is fabulous. Their defense probably needs to be a little bit stronger. And the fact that they're able to know that going into 2021 um, has to be useful, despite the fact that they didn't get any sort of conclusive uh, results on the, on the field. Right. That, and they were still at times missing a lot of key players. Right. Like Mallory Pugh, obviously we got to see one time in what felt like a really, really great goal that she combined with with Midge Purse. But, you know, that was it for her. She obviously didn't have a chance to play the uh, any of the other games with injury. Carly Lloyd wasn't around, but right, that's one of the teams where even if it's inconclusive, it's not like there wasn't stuff to be learned. Exactly. Um, and right, like you said, that's another underrated thing that I think we don't talk about enough. Probably when we talk about 2020 is the, the injuries or, or opt outs or stuff like that, where, um, Houston got pretty lucky when it came to, to injury and, and cohesiveness with their roster all the way through the year, Washington got pretty unlucky. Uh, they were going in, I think, trying to do what Houston ended up actually doing, but they didn't have the, all the pieces available, um, either during the challenge cup or during the fall series. But again, you know, I know I'm, I'm Chicago centric cause that's where I'm based, but they didn't necessarily feel bad about having that time to work people back from injury. A lot of times Roy James would say, you know, if this was a must win, we maybe would have pushed more, but we don't have to. So we're not. Um, so I think that there are good things and bad things about the low stakes in, in that regard as well. For sure. And one team I think we didn't end up talking about that we could have was Utah, who have also had an up and down year for a lot of different reasons. Um, They started the season like the rain with a new coach. And it looked like at the in the challenge cup, even though they got out in the quarters that maybe Craig Harrington and the Royals were working on something and it might work. And now he's not there right now. Who knows if he'll be back, but we have now for the first time a former NWSL player as the head coach of an NWSL team, even on, on an interim basis in Amy LaPel, but it's been a pretty hectic year for them overall though. Right. And they've had, they're another team that had good moments and less good moments. I would say that the result this weekend was probably the most, the one that maybe indicated that they got less out of this year. They have, fun young pieces that I rate pretty highly. Obviously Ziara King was a huge breakout star. Um, You have Liz Ball in in the back line, who I think is great. Abby Smith, I think winning that starting position at goalkeeper is very promising. The upheaval, not only I think in the coaching staff, but also I just think that there was a lot of, as we know, institutional issues and culture issues that had less to do with the players, but did affect the players. Probably, was I mean I, I can't imagine that it was useful to help 
with the on-field project. And then, right, Amy LaPelba just didn't get a lot of time to do to do much with what she had. Harrington in the Challenge Cup, I think, was operating under the idea that he had a talent deficit because they had a number of opt-outs and injuries. And so with that kind of clarity, they were able to grind out some, some results that had people kind of excited. Um, but now you can't, you can't operate like that forever, especially in a full, full season where everyone's going to have kind of their heavy hitters back. So Utah, if anything was learned by Utah, it's that they need to be aggressive in this off season. I think, I think that they need to figure out their coaching situation quickly. They need to maybe buy some draft picks back and they need to go after some top tier high level players because they're going to need that to compete. Otherwise they're really going to struggle next year as well. All right. Any final thoughts on the NWSL fall series or just the NWSL in 2020? Not really. I had a great time. I, en- I enjoyed the friendlies a little bit. I liked it where uh, everything was made up and the points don't matter. So let's try some wacky stuff and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. That's always a great selling point. Never be normal. Exactly. I enjoy that. Exactly. <laughs> and the NWSL never promises to be normal anyway, <laughs> nor should it. All right. NWSL fall series. It was nice knowing you. We'll be back with another segment shortly. What's up, everybody? Jeff Kasouf here, founder of The Equalizer. I want to make sure that you know we also have another podcast called Kicking Back, which is interview-based. We talk to players, coaches, personalities from across women's soccer about defining moments in their career and some important things from the present day and look ahead a little bit to the future. We've had guests like Crystal Dunn, Becky Sauerbrunn, Jill Ellis, Bev Yanez, Ali Riley, Julie Foudy and Mia Hamm, so many already and many more to come. So please go ahead and check out Kicking Back Pod on any platform you find your podcast after, of course, you've finished up with this episode of the Equalizer Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Equalizer Podcast. I do know the name. Um, Thank you again for listening, and please don't forget to rate and review and subscribe if you haven't already. I'm back with Claire Watkins, and, well, the NWSL games might be over, but the NWSL isn't slowing down quite yet. In fact, they told us in the last couple of days that they've got finally a date for the Louisville expansion draft, and it is just Louisville. So let's go through a couple of those dates that they shared. this week, October 22nd, Thursday, the train and waiver window closes. And the same day, they're going to announce all of the previously unannounced trades. But the following week, the end of season process deadline, that's when, the, that's when that deadline is. The more fun things to remember, though, Wednesday, November 4th, the protected list is due from clubs. And the next day, they're going to be made public. And then the following week, so uh, Thursday, November 12th, that's when Louisville get to pick their players in the expansion draft. And then the day after, the trade window opens. Sounds like a fun time. Uh, Low stress, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't think anyone's stressed it at all. Um, they didn't really share much, but I think we found out on the broadcast during one of the NWSL games on Saturday that each team will be allowed to protect 11 players. So... Uh, that doesn't sound like an easy task for anyone. No, I think, I think it's going to be tough. I think so 11 players, which is more than last time we haven't had an expansion draft since 2016, I think. Um, 
And that makes sense. I don't know. I went back upon the announcement of, of this, of, of the new expansion draft and looked at the rosters for everybody. The last time the NWSL had an expansion draft and it's, you can't overstate how much the league has changed since then and how much deeper these teams are. I think the thorns only listed like 15 people on their roster during the last expansion draft. So it's a whole new world. It makes sense to be able to protect more people. The big one, the big thing though, and again, I'm thinking from a Chicago perspective is that it's still only two allocated players that you can protect. So you might feel really comfortable with your top 11, but if you're a team like North Carolina, like Chicago, who has three, four, five allocated players, you're forced to leave at least two or three of those unprotected. And I think that that is where the nerves really come in for the stronger teams. Um, I thought the timing of it was interesting. It's happening very soon. Uh, theoretically, the they're having the expansion draft the Thursday before we were originally supposed to have the final. So they're really getting on top of stuff. I don't think that's a bad idea. Get it over with and then you can make trades because I don't, See, there's no value for teams right now to sign players before the expansion draft. So it's helpful for out-of-league signings to get this kind of done and dusted. Um, and yeah, I don't feel like I know exactly what's going to happen. There are little things that you can imagine. Like you can say, well, Louisville probably is looking at maybe one of Portland's three amazing goalkeepers or something like that. But I don't know. It all just depends on what Christy Holly wants the cornerstone of the club to be. But I also think that Louisville will be pretty strong. I think that there's a lot of really good players to choose from. And they all were on display this this year because we saw a lot of, of depth roles kind of fleshed out. Right. That's got to be an advantage for Christy Holly and company that a lot of players who opted out meant a lot of other players got a chance to show how they are. And that's probably really, really fun from a coaching perspective. So you were talking about what Christy Holly might want to make the cornerstone of his team. And it's been a while since he's been coaching in the NWSL. So I'm wondering what sort of thing, what sort of players he, if you have an idea what he might be interested in at this point, like I said, it's been a few years since he's been doing this. Right. He, yeah, he hasn't coached for a while. And and that sky blue roster that he was in charge of, is was a product of some of the just the club itself I don't know how much of that was something that he would say that he put together like as of as a full roster I like I said I think that obviously there are just some obvious depth positions that you think he might be interested in like I said Portland has a wealth of goalkeeping depth you look at teams who defensively did do better this year Chicago has a lot of defensive depth they've got a lot of really strong young players on their back line um and then the other big question is, who does he want his allocated players to be? And I think that that is also interesting because we all know the NWSL coaches, the top coaches, Paul Riley, um, Mark Parsons, Rory Dames, they're probably right now kind of trying to figure out what deal they're going to get Christy Holly on the phone and say, Hey, if you don't take this person, what if I give you this person? Because they also want to have some control over this too. I don't think there's any NWSL coach who is just like, well, I'll put my list out and that'll be that. And whoever goes, goes, I think they're going to try to do everything they can to package things. Chicago has a lot of draft picks to deal out. Um, so I wouldn't be shocked to find out if we had some handshake deals in, in that regard as well. Yeah, that's what makes maybe this upcoming week interesting when the trade window closes because I think we all know that there's a possibility of 
I mean, it's the NWSL, so there's always a possibility of a little bit of wildness and chaos. But like you said, people are going to do everything they can to keep whatever players they can. We'll see yeah. how that shapes out. But it's yeah. I mean, I'm I'm definitely. I think I I kind of said this in a different way, but I personally, and I hope that fans feel the same way. I feel pretty good about the expansion draft because of the way 2020 kind of played out in that. I think that Louisville has the opportunity to make some more informed decisions and that there's some depth. It's good for everybody. I think to have more players showcased so that maybe they get opportunities in Louisville because that also helps the other teams stay a little bit more intact. So instead of having a team be like, I want this big name player. I want that big name player. Even if that's not necessarily good for that expansion team, they can put together something that's really solid um, that might not break too many hearts around the league. Um, And then those players get the opportunity to start for a club and represent a club when they might go back to the bottom of the list next year. Um, for some of these other teams. So I think it all, I think it all has the opportunity to be really interesting and positive. And then also the other way, if a big player ends up leaving a different club to go to Louisville, the depth that other, that basically every team was allowed to show means somebody else who maybe might not have gotten that chance before ends up featuring for the team that they're still at. Exactly. No negatives here, but we were talking about how it's just Louisville, Sacramento. It looks like they're not joining this year. It would, don't think it would make any sense at this point for them to join if they're not going to be part of the expansion draft. But we've had some interesting comments out of Louisville that make it seem like there's nothing settled just oh, – I meant Sacramento. Nothing settled just yet there. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I said this before we started recording. I am desperate for a 10-team season I and then jump to 12. I, if we could never, ever have an odd number of teams ever again, I would be thrilled. Um yeah, Sacramento's weird, right? They were close last year. Everyone says it's just not quite over the line yet, and then it doesn't come to fruition. That ends up probably being pretty lucky for them because 2020 has been a disaster. Um, obviously, you would wonder if that has made them slow down a little bit, even for 2021 or 2022, but very noncommittal. And I don't know if it's an infrastructure thing or if they have, you know, in maneuvering through their going to MLS. I'm sure they have a lot of, you know, financial ties to a lot of different projects right now. Um, I would love for there to be two California teams. I think it would be fabulous if they both came into the league at the same time. But um, just Louisville for 2021 doesn't bother me. I'm I'm counting my lucky stars that we're going to have 10 teams. <laughs> yeah, here's hoping for even teams forever. Maybe Lisa Baird listens to this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah, I think the future of two California teams sounds fun. Maybe they'll come in together. That would make for a very interesting expansion draft for sure. But uh, just when we thought we had the crystal clear or close enough to expansion outlook in the NWSL, things get a little bit murky. That's life, isn't it? Life in the NWSL, for sure. I think that there are just some things that you can't you can't rush. And especially, like I said, with, with 2020 being a financial struggle for everybody. I, um, I'm sure there's a lot of balance, a lot of balance going on right now. Yeah. Um, so we'll obviously have more to talk about with that expansion draft when those trades are made, those protected and unprotected lists are made public and Christy Holly and Louisville have basically a week to, you know, wring their hands over who they want and who they don't. 
that's not about some players who will be in NWSL, but there are some players who will be maybe in the NWSL next year that are actually in England right now. And it was a pretty big weekend for the USWNT players in England. Of what, there are five of them there, four of them played, three of them scored. Press and Heath scored their first goals for Manchester United and Sam Mewis scored again for Manchester City in, for them, a draw against Reading. And I didn't mention, but Manchester United beat West Ham 4-2. So uh, what did you catch? And, I mean, the Heath goal was very, very nice. Yeah, the Heath goal was wonderful. Um, the press goal, too, it was that was a tough angle um, for her, for her finish as well. I thought that was pretty clinical. Um, Mewis, uh, Sam Mewis at Manchester City, man, that is cool. She is in a system with them. I, I don't know if you've gotten a chance to catch many of their games. I've, I've seen a couple where – she's allowed just to kind of run a lot. <laughs> she, she's very free on that team because they've got Kira Walsh kind of holding things down in that midfield. So Mewis, when she plays for North Carolina, is asked to do a lot more holding and defensive work. But for Manchester City, she can just kind of go be free. And she's been so good for them. It's fun to watch. She's a foot taller than everybody else on the field. <laughs> and, and she, you can, her, her movement and her presence for them is, is really, really fun. And I'm so glad that she's having so much success for Lavelle. She's working her way back from injury. We've heard, I think it's a little bit of a longer project. It's a little bit not great for Manchester city that they're not winning games. It's a, it's an interesting thing where the U S project there is going very well, but they haven't been able to seal games out. So that's a concern for them. Um, and then yeah. Yeah, the, the man United players, you know, Heath and press, I think it's a timeline that's expected. I think press press is being played as their nine right now. And United doesn't have fabulous depth all over their field and so sometimes she gets stranded and so I think that sometimes with press her position doesn't do her a ton of a ton of credit when it comes to scoring goals and and getting those stat lines but the fact that they were able to put it together today was great um and then right so I I do want to mention though the it seems like Alex Morgan who did not make the the 18 for Tottenham today that she Picked up a knock in in training, so she has some sort of a, an injury holding her back right now from from making that 18. And my only take on that is obviously there the the classic probably thing for people to be saying right now is that she was maybe a little bit overhyped, but I don't think she goes over to England if she thought she was going to be ready to go for these Orlando games. So I think that this kind of timeline makes sense to me. You go do a loan like that because you're going to need games in November and December because it's going to take time for you to make your way back to fitness. So for me, this actually doesn't seem too far off of the plan. It's a little bit more of a delay than she wanted, I'm sure. But when you're working your way back into fitness like that, those kinds of small muscle injuries do happen. And you got to make sure that you're going to have games to work through after that. Absolutely. I was just thinking about the trajectory of all the players so far, the way you outlined it. And I think basically right now, the one thing that you can sort of look at as a correlation is Sam Mewis of all of these five was really the only one that arrived to their club in England match fit. She played in the challenge cup. Then obviously she got a little bit more preseason than Rose Lavelle did. And she, Sam Mewis has slotted right in and has been, incredible incredible and like you said everybody else it's sort of ending up the way that you might expect for people like Lavelle hasn't been fully fit even though she didn't play at the challenge cup Heath and press 
didn't play at the Challenge Cup. Morgan hasn't played since last year. And I, I also am not particularly panicked about Morgan. I actually watch Tottenham a lot. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before because I am a Tottenham fan. I write for a, diff, uh, for a Tottenham website. But overhyped is definitely not the word for it. Right. There are lots of games. Even if she doesn't end up with the pride right away, like right as they start preseason, this is a good time for her to build that match fitness. I mean, the Olympics are still – it's obviously on her radar, but the Olympics are still – Several months away, there are a lot of games on the calendar for her to build that match fitness. And that's true for anybody that's playing, not just in the FAWSL, but in Europe where they, for now, have games on the schedule. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, my, my Alex Morgan takes are so room temperature lukewarm. <laughs> when she was announced going to Tottenham, I was like, that makes sense. She's probably not ready to play four games in a row, and she needs – to have games down the stretch. She needs consistent training time. She can't be done in the middle of October. That's not going to work for her. Um, and then when she hasn't been playing, I was like, yeah, that's why she went. Like, it makes sense. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think that the, the narrative upon the transfer was that it was very exciting and people are a little bit impatient, but you can't rush these things. Um, yeah. She'll play for them and she'll be good. That's going to happen. Right. It would be troubling if she doesn't end up getting any games at all by – I don't know, maybe December or January, but like I said, as long as there's games on the calendar, they'll all find a way to get minutes barring injury. And all the stuff they've been saying, I mean, everything coming out of the club has been super duper positive. So I, I just think that it's not a crisis. If anyone thinks it's a crisis, it's really not. No, no. Hopefully everybody's doing okay in that. But anyway, great weekend for USWNT players in the uh, FAWSL and it's turning out to be a really interesting season just generally. I mean, Everton is at the top. They obviously don't have any USWNT players, but that's a team that I didn't expect to be as high up as they are. And well, good for them. Yeah. I am. Um, I'm, I'm someone who has criticized the FAWSL before for being too top heavy. Um, but I think this is, I mean, the, the infusion of, of talent from, from America helps, but uh, this has been a more competitive already about a more competitive season than we've seen in years past. And that's very exciting. Everton's cool. Everton's a very cool team. Um, and then obviously uh, Viv Miedema became the all-time FAWSL leading scorer with 50 goals today. Um, she's very yeah. good. And <laughs> Arsenal is a team that's really struggled with, with roster depth. Um, and sometimes, you know, they've gotten blown out of the water a little bit when they go up against the other top teams, but it seems like they're working through something that's working quite well for them as well. And like you mentioned, Manchester City hasn't had a perfect go of it either. They tied uh, Reading today. And I believe they also tied with um, Brighton earlier this season. Yeah, that's right. And yep. So, yeah, there's still a lot of there's, – there's a lot of up and down there. And that – look, I said the NWSL shouldn't be normal, but I also mean that the FAWSL shouldn't be normal. Nobody should be normal. A little yeah, bit I, of surprise I'm, is good. Unpredictability is good, I think. Yeah, that's why we watch sports, right? And now that we've completed our international portion of today's podcast, let's move back to a domestic issue with a, a very interesting question from one of our listeners. This is from Tom Stidman, and uh, I think I pronounced that right. But again, if I didn't, I do apologize. But anyway, to your interesting question. Do we know if there is an NWSL college draft with no fall 2020 women's college soccer? If so, do we know when it would happen after a spring soccer season? And I think that just opens up a can of worms on 
how messy the college soccer scene is right now? Yeah, this is a good question because it acknowledges a problem that has not yet been resolved. Um, some teams are playing college soccer right now. The ACC is playing. So UNC, Virginia, Florida State, those teams are playing. Uh, teams like the teams in the Pac-12 are not. And so like Stanford's not playing right now, UCLA, USC, those teams. And that's a problem because traditionally you have the college draft at the United Coaches Convention and that is, or United Soccer Coaches, and that is in January. It's usually the first week of the year. Usually when a person declares for the NWSL draft, that is them forfeiting the rest of their college eligibility. So it doesn't happen a lot because usually it's seniors that, that declare, but when underclassmen do declare, they are giving up their NCAA eligibility. That isn't going to work if you have players who want to play in the spring. I don't think it has to be a huge deal to work something out with the NCAA saying these players are declaring for the draft. They are retaining their college eligibility until the spring season is over. They will join their NWSL clubs in May or June. But the other issue here, which is one that I don't think people necessarily have on the horizon yet, but should just be in the back of everybody's minds, is if things get canceled, or I think actually even with the cancellation of the NCAA tournament this fall, players are given an extra year of college eligibility. The NCAA has allowed them to stay to um, extend their eligibility for one more year to have an opportunity to have a more normal final season. So there are players who don't necessarily even have to declare for the draft at all. Um, If you have some players who think to themselves, wow, a free year of grad school would be really nice. There might be fewer names on that list than the NWSL wants. So it's an issue. I don't have an answer for it. I don't know if it's going to be a rescheduled draft later in the year or if they're going to figure out eligibility or if they're going to, I don't know, plead with some of the top soccer college soccer stars to say, Hey, we can give you really nice things in the NWSL. Please don't stay in college. Uh, But that is an issue um, that is going to affect a lot of things, especially if you assume that maybe Louisville, gets a pick. Like I said, Chicago has a lot of 2021 draft picks with the idea that that would be a very strong class. Uh, you know, I don't know if you have a player like Katarina Macario graduating from college in December and you don't know what's going to happen next, you might want to figure that out. Yeah. I mean, you say you don't have the answers. Who knows if in the NWSL front office, they have the answers yet. It's, I mean, it's a really, I mean, tricky might be a nice word for this type of scenario. It's just, I mean, maybe a mess is harsh, but it is a mess. It's nobody's fault. Um, right. But, and it's, I think the, the biggest issue if you're an NWSL fan is that the NCAA is famously very difficult to negotiate with. And so you could see a scenario where they don't really want to work with the league all that much. And so that puts the league in a tough spot when it comes to this year's uh, graduating seniors, which like I said, everyone's been really excited about for a long time. So I'm hopeful that they'll figure something out that works for everybody. Right. I think you made a good point about them. They might have, the NWSL might have to incentivize seniors and uh, to not get, uh, not take that extra year of eligibility in the college game and come to the NWSL. And I would be really interesting to see, I would be really interested to see what they would do in that department, but I mean, good luck figuring that one out. That doesn't sound fun. Right. And I don't think that's also 
necessarily bad. I think that it's maybe speeding up a thing that has been slowly becoming more and more true over time, which is that the NWSL does need to keep improving what they offer seniors to go into the college draft because the draft is set up with parity rules and it's not necessarily great for player choice. And if the NWSL can't compete with one year of college, they got to figure that out. They got to do better. That's something for the ownership groups to put their heads together and say, how can we make this a destination for these players to compete with these college programs. And I'm thinking that there's probably a little bit of a chain reaction too. If you're trying to incentivize the newest players in the league, then you're probably going to have to step up your game with players who've been in the league at least one or two years, if not longer. Obviously the USWNT players aren't really ones you have to worry about in terms of incentivizing in some ways anyway. But if if you have to work harder to get the college players in, then you're probably going to have to work harder to get the other players to stay. And that's probably part of the, I mean, it's an unforeseen part of the, I think, increase in spending that has happened in women's soccer lately, but that the NWSL really has to in order to compete with European teams. Yeah, I think these are the things that keep owners up at night. (laughs) (laughs) And again, an, an untruck and 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 in and in a tricky financial predicament that uh, many many are in during right. this pandemic. Yep. Yeah. So good luck navigating that NWSL and owners. I don't envy you in any way. <laughs> and I think that's about it for today. So again, Claire, thanks very much for taking the time out. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And. Everybody, thank you for listening. We'll be back with another episode next week. Nobody builds 5G like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from Metric's second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.